0: Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus, because we're continuing our series in the book of Titus now. I need to find it, because I lost my place. It is in the New Testament. You'll remember if you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Uh, It's a short book, only about three chapters long, and uh, if you remember, this is a book that was written, it's a letter really, from Paul to Titus, where Paul had uh, worked with Titus, establishing some churches on this Mediterranean island of Crete, and Paul had moved on and left Titus there in charge to to put the church in order. And so what we see in these few short chapters is Paul gives some important instructions saying, essentially, these are the things that you have to get in place if you want the church to be established and if you want Christians to grow in their faith and live godly lives. And so I've I've called this series uh, simply Nine Keys for the Church because I think there's at least nine lessons that Paul has for Titus in this book. And we've looked at two of them so far, so in the first four verses, the first key that Paul said uh, for a church to succeed and for Christians to grow is you've got to put God first, because okay? the church is God's church. Uh, the plan of salvation is God's plan of salvation. It's not about us and, and building our own church and making our own lives better. It's about God, and so you've got to put God first. Uh, and then the second key we focused on last week uh, was more practical, and, and the second key is that you need to appoint elders. Uh, You need to appoint godly elders, elders who will lead the church well, uh, who are qualified to do that because leadership affects the entire organization. Uh, Well today, we're going to keep on moving in in the book of Titus, now starting in verse 10, and see a third key that flows right out of the last one. And the third key is that you've got to teach the truth. We saw that the final qualification for elders in verse 9 was that they've got to be able to hold to the Bible, they've got to love the Bible, treasure the Bible, and then they've also got to be able to use the Word of God to encourage people in their faith, and at the same time to rebuke false teaching. And so flowing right out of that exhortation, Paul says to Titus, now uh, let's talk a little bit more about what those false teaching things could be and how you should rebuke them. And that's what we see in these verses. So I'm going to start in verse 9. And read uh, all the way from chapter 1, verse 9 of Titus to chapter 2, verse 1. So follow along with me. Uh, Speaking of elders' qualifications here in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinates, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in their faith, uh, sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So here's the situation Titus is in the island of Crete, and Crete is full of, as he says in verse. Uh, where is this here, verse 12, Crete is full of people who are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's kind of a, bot, uh, a byword, a proverb about the people of this island. It's a rotten place to be, and there's lots of false teachers that are running around. And So Paul says to Titus, there's three things that you need to do if you're going to establish a church in a situation like this. And the three, three things you have to do is, first of all, you have to silence false teachers, Secondly, you have to rebuke false teaching. And then third, you need to teach the truth. So we're going to look at those in order this morning. And the first thing is just this. You've got to silence false teachers. Who are these false teachers that we're looking at? Well, in verse 10, we get a picture of these guys. And if I had to summarize it, I'd say that the false teachers, you can call them the anti-elders. They're they're the opposite of everything that you want to see in an elder. Uh, For example, you you look in verse... um, where are we here? Um, look at the, in, in verse 11, it says that these false teachers are teaching for shameful gain. That is, they're teaching because they're greedy and they want money. As opposed to elders, who we saw back in, in the section that describes them, they're not supposed to be greedy. Okay? Uh, false teachers, we see that they are upsetting whole households or whole families with their teaching. Whereas elders should actually be uh, running their own household well, which qualifies them to take care of God's household, you know, the opposite of what the anti-elders are doing. Uh, we see that the anti-elders, these false teachers, uh, they themselves, in verse 10, are described as being insubordinate or rebellious, whereas one of the qualifications for elders is that they need to manage their house well so that their kids are not insubordinate or rebellious. Same word. Uh, and again, the the uh, the anti-elders, Uh, all the things that they say, it's empty talk. They're deceivers. Their words are not helpful. In fact, they're lies. But the elders, their words are supposed to be words that are based on the Bible and encourage and rebuke false teaching. So these folks are the opposite of what you want as an elder. And so the command that Paul gives to Titus is to silence these people. So we see in verse 11, they must be silenced. Uh, you know, and what he means by that, not, not, in a, not in a mob sort of way, where you need to silence that guy, uh, but uh, just don't give them a voice. Right? You, know, you have a choice as a local church. He's telling you, choose elders that are going to be good. And he says, don't give these kinds of people a voice. You know, it's, it's bad enough when in a flock you've got a wolf in sheep's clothing. Because right? a wolf in sheep's clothing could take out a few sheep. That would be bad. But a wolf in shepherd's clothing? can destroy the whole flock. And that's what's going on here with these anti-elders. They're, they're getting voices of leadership. They're, they're getting people to follow them, to listen to them. And they're destroying whole households. Maybe, maybe it's talking even about whole house churches, you know, churches that met in homes. They're leading aside entire congregations with their false teaching. Paul says, you can't let that happen. You've got to silence them. And of course, you can't go around telling everybody who is f- teaching falsehood that they need to stop or forcing everybody to stop. Uh, especially in our day and age, uh, anybody can set themselves up as a teacher. You know, you get a, get a webcam and YouTube or you get a blog and, and you just... Anybody can spew out whatever they want and set themselves up as an authority. And it's not our job to go out there and to, to, to launch denial-of-service attacks on your website that's got you know, anything bad on there and, and take them down or, or anything like that. He's, he's talking about what we can do and in our local congregation we can make sure First of all, that we have elders who are teaching the truth. And we focused on that last week. So I want to focus on the other thing that we can do, which is what he continues on to say here. The other thing that we can do to silence false teachers is that we can rebuke the false teaching. This is the second point on your outline, rebuke false teaching. This is what you see in verse 13. uh, What Paul says to Timothy, uh, Therefore... Rebuke them sharply. Um, he, he's not just saying, you know, you know, tell these guys just stop it. You know, please, please don't. Please don't talk. Please don't say these things. And he says, rebuke them sharply. It's a word that means uh, rigorously or very thoroughly, uh, strenuously. Uh, he's saying, you know, n- identify the false teaching that they're giving, understand what it is that they're saying be able to point out why it's wrong and then to thoroughly, sharply, rigorously rebuke it so that it's just left in a little husk on the floor. Nobody even wants to follow that false teaching because it's so ridiculous. saying, rebuke the false teaching. Don't let it stand. And there's lots of kinds of false teaching. Okay? It would be impossible for us to address all kinds of false teaching in, in any one setting. But he focuses on two here that I think are worth us looking at. In verse 14, then, he continues on and says specifically, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. So these are are two categories of false teaching that were especially prevalent in this situation, and they're still prevalent today. uh, And and, and they're just myths, is one category, and man-made commands is the second. He says teach them not to devote themselves to Jewish myths." Okay, now, now what's a myth? A myth would be anything that goes beyond what the Bible teaches. Okay, so myth is anything that goes beyond what the Bible teaches. And there's a couple problems with myths. They're baseless and they're fruitless. Okay, so myths are baseless. We don't, we don't find out much more about myths in this letter. Uh, one of the problems with Titus being such a short letter is Paul doesn't take a lot of time to elaborate on what exactly is happening. But if we look at other letters uh, that are written about the same time in similar situations like First and Second Timothy, we can find out more about these myths. And one thing that we learn, if we like First Timothy, for example, in First Timothy chapter one, Paul says that these myths, one characteristic of them, is that they promote speculation. So there's a sort of thing, that when you, when you talk about it, there's no foundation to it. Okay? It's, just, it's just speculation. It promotes you building castles in the air, creating new ideas, no, no foundation to them, just whatever you think, spinning out these ideas, these silly stories. Uh, later on in 1 Timothy, Paul also calls them irreverent, silly stories. So they're a lot like the, the things that I've started telling my kids at the dinner table, when they ask me how my day was, because usually my day's pretty boring, which doesn't make a good story. It's all right when I'm in it, but when I go home to tell my kids, well, what did you do? Well, I basically studied and read books and did some emails and talked to some people on the phone. It's it's not scintillating dinner conversation. So I started making up silly stories for the girls. Uh, They usually involve talking animals or some sort of adaptation of a fairy tale, like a giant beanstalk growing in the backyard and adventures that I have with pirates and things like that. So the girls love these. They're they're silly stories. We all recognize they're silly stories, Uh, but they're completely baseless. I mean, none of the stuff in these stories actually happened. And that's, that's kind of the idea of what's going on with these myths. They're just made up. They might be interesting. They're certainly silly. And, and they're foundationless. They have no base. Now, he specifically says that in this case, the myths that they're dealing with in verse 14 are Jewish myths. Which, again, we don't know a lot about what the content of those myths would be. But it tells us that the jumping-off point for this speculation is probably the Old Testament. So they would, they would read the Old Testament, uh, some, probably some genealogies or other stories, and, and then just take that as a, as a seed, a jumping-off point, and make up wholesale, complete myths, fabrications, silly stories, sort of tenuously tied back to something that you could find in the Old Testament. Okay, so that's one way that you can make myths. You can do speculative reading of the Bible. But that's not the only way that myths show up. Again, if we look in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy actually this time, uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul explains that sometimes people make up myths just to satisfy their itching ears. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, if you want to look that up. But he says people have what he calls itching ears. People have a desire to hear something, a longing for an explanation about something. And they don't have an explanation, so what happens? Well, someone realizes there's a need, and they'll just make up a story. Just make up a myth. Just, just tell them something that satisfies their need. doesn't matter if it's true or not. We're just meeting a need by making up a myth. Other times, these sorts of things arise out of visions. Colossians 2.18 notes that sometimes myths come when people have a vision and they become obsessed with what they've seen and hold that vision up as an ultimate authority doesn't have any basis in reality, doesn't have a basis in truth but that vision can become a source of a myth. Now, now I I labor this point because these are not just things that happened 2,000 years ago. People didn't stop making up myths when the Industrial Revolution came along. Just because we have uh, the Internet doesn't mean that we don't have myths. In fact, because we have the Internet, it probably means we have more myths. We have these sorts of things all over the place. I was doing some research this week, and I just looked at the New York Times bestseller list. Okay, And surprise, surprise, number one on the New York Times bestseller list for paperlet- paperbacks was a book called Heaven is for Real. Okay? Now, I haven't read this book yet, so I'm not going to specifically criticize this book. I tried to get it from the library, couldn't find it. Um, but this book... Is, is purportedly a report of a vision that a four-year-old boy had of heaven when he was under anesthesia for an appendectomy. Okay. And this is the number one selling book in America uh, on paperbacks, according to the New York Times. Now, I'm not going to criticize this specific book because I haven't read it, but this, it's not surprising to me that a book of this genre is at the top of the bestseller list, because these sorts of books abound. You've got books about visions of heaven, near-death experiences, uh, even visions of hell. And, and they're all over the place and we need to ask ourselves what do we do with things like that? Are those helpful for us? Are those good for us? Where do those fall in this category of myth or good teaching? I think there's there's three things I want you to, to think about when you ask that question about a book like this. Um, the first question to ask is, is it biblical? Because one of the problems with, with myths is that they're baseless. They're just speculation. They come out of of nowhere. So anybody could come up with a vision and they could claim that this is what they had, what they saw, the experience they had. But what's the foundation for it? Is it biblical? And and beware. Lots of times these books will try to answer that question by just putting in uh, certain scripture references, by by quoting verses and you think, oh, well, they quote the Bible, so it must be biblical. Um, Even the devil quoted the Bible, uh, probably better than most of us. So that's not good enough. Uh, you, need to, you need to ask, is it biblical in a sense? Is it, is it in line with the teaching of the Bible, with the themes of Scripture? One of the big tip-offs with these heaven books is that they're often extremely man-centered. That is, they paint a picture of heaven that itching ears would love to hear. A picture of heaven that says, here are, you know, just, just imagine the best vacation you could ever have. You know, and, and your friends are there, And it's free food and drinks and and it's just beautiful weather and you're healthy. And and all those things are fine. But there's no God in these heavens. It's a very man-centered reality. And and people buy the books. Why do you think they're number one on the bestseller list? Because this is what we want to hear. We want to hear about a heaven in which it's just the, the best dream that I ever had. But God is what makes heaven, heaven. The fact that God is there is what makes heaven good. We were created for a relationship with him. If he's not there, then it's hell, folks. And that's what a lot of these books are pandering, what they're offering. So you've got to ask, is it biblical? And the second one, even if it is, even if it's not unbiblical, okay, even, if it, even if you can say, okay, it's generally in line with the themes of the Bible, you need to ask, does it have authority? Uh, you know, Again, these books, they're everywhere. They're they're bestsellers because people love to read them, and and they they read them with such uh, veracity, with such uh, attention to detail, as if these books provide the answers they've been waiting for, as if these books have authority. Folks, if you want a vision of heaven that has authority, we've got one of those. It's in the book of Revelation. John went to heaven. He saw what it was like, and he wrote it down, and God said, tell these words to your people. That's what we should go to if we want authority, not some vision of a four-year-old under anesthesia or a guy who was dead for 90 minutes or whatever. Okay? Do they have authority? They, you know, they might be interesting, but we don't read them with the same eyes that we read the Bible. The Bible tells us how it really is. The third thing to question is just to question the motives of the people writing the books. Again, I point your attention to the fact that these books are bestsellers. Uh, you know, a, a guy not too long ago wrote a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. Sold millions of copies. So a little while later, another guy wrote a book called 23 Minutes in Hell. Do uh, you think that's a coincidence? I mean, you can call me cynical, but I think that's greed. And as you look in our passage, you see one of the problems with these false teachers is that in verse 11 it says they are teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught? Folks, lots of this stuff is just out there because people want to make a buck, and we eat it up. When all the time we've got the words of life written right here, everything that we need. So myths are baseless, but the thing that makes them so um, even even more horrible is that they're fruitless. They don't actually do any good. Um, Brian's downstairs helping with the nursery, so I'm going to pick on Star Trek a little bit. Um, this is, uh, I think that you get involved in these myths, you can have what I, what I call the Trekkie effect. Okay. Uh, and not to, not to bash on Star Trek, it's a fine thing, but it's just a great example of what can happen. Uh, you, know, you, you, can, you can love something so much. You can find something so interesting, like, like hardcore Trekkies, that you devote your whole life... To, to finding out all the details about Star Trek. You know, read all the books, watch all the movies, go to the conventions, have impassioned arguments about you know, whether the next generation is the best one or whether it was the original or, or, or whatever. Uh, I'm not a Trekkie, so I can't speak to that. Uh, but you, you have these big arguments, or you, you devote your life to finding out everything that you can about this thing that might be interesting, but it makes no difference in the way that you live your life. It makes no impact in your ability to live a godly life. Okay, and that's one of the signs of myths. It might be interesting, you, you know, it might be fascinating to study on angels and to find out all you can about angels and read these books that people have written about angels and and, and find out all these things, or to study heaven and near-death experiences and and learn all you can about these things. But what happens with myths is you just get caught up in it because it's fruitless speculation. It just fosters more and more uh, searching. It's what Paul calls in Second Timothy uh, chapter three, people who are always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. This is what happens when you engage in myths and seeking out the truth through myths. They're baseless and they're fruitless. They don't lead to a changed life. And that's one of the things he's writing against here. He's saying, these myths, stay away from them. Avoid them. They're not helpful because they're not true. The second category that he gives, and it's on the back of your outline now. The second category of false teaching is man-made commands. Okay. Seemingly very different, but actually quite similar to myths, because man-made commands are also baseless and fruitless. Uh, see, man-made commands, we see this in, in verse 14. This is the, what he calls the commands of men. Uh, these are commands that are baseless, because they don't come from God. They're commands that men have made up. I'm speaking generically of mankind, not just males. Uh, They're commands that people have made up, rules that we make up, and we say, if we will keep these rules, then we will be pure or godly. Uh, It's probably worth flipping to Matthew 15. Because Matthew 15, verse 5, Jesus um, actually uses the same phrase and explains what commands of men are. He's having a, a confrontation with the Pharisees, as so often happens. And this time, the Pharisees are upset because the disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. Now, this is not a hygiene issue. So it wasn't like you know employees must wash hands before returning to work. Uh, this, the, the hand washing that they were doing was a ceremonial hand washing. So it'd be much more like us uh, praying before we eat. You know, it's just something that we do to honor God before we eat. And for them. They would ceremonially wash their hands. And it said, by doing that, we've made ourselves pure so that the food that we eat is pure. If we don't wash our hands, the food is impure and we will be defiled by that. Okay, so that's the situation. They made up this rule. got to wash your hands ceremonially before you eat so that you stay pure. Not healthy, but just pure. And Jesus and the disciples, they weren't doing that. They were just diving in, just eating the food. And so G- the, the Pharisees have trouble with that. And Jesus says in uh, Matthew 15, sorry, verse, uh, verse 7, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So these are the things that are in view commandments of men, things that people make up like the Pharisees did. Uh, commands where you say, okay, there's, there's two categories of things in the world. There are pure things and there are impure things. Now, if I only take in the pure things, if I live my life according to these rules such that I only do pure things, only take in pure things, then I will be pure. Okay, that's how I get pure. I do pure things, I eat pure things, then I become pure. If I avoid impure things, I'll be pure. So they did this with, with food, uh, we also see in, uh, in First Timothy and Colossians the sorts of rules. Some people said, don't get married. That was one of them. So if you don't get married, then you'll be pure. That was a command. So a lot of us have busted that one. Uh, they also said, uh, don't, uh, don't eat certain foods, or you have to do these festivals or observe these certain days or holidays. Um, so you say, okay, here's, here's pure foods. If I only eat pure foods, then I'll be pure. It'll make me pure. Or we can say, okay, here are, here are pure movies. Here are impure movies. If I only watch pure movies, then I'll be pure. If I don't, if I don't watch impure movies, then I'll be pure. Or we can do with people. We say, well, here's, here are people who are pure. If I just hang out with pure people, then I'll be pure. If I don't hang out with impure people, I won't be pure. Uh, that's the idea. That's what people were teaching in and, crea- and it's very appealing. You can see the appeal when you're in an island like Crete. Everyone around you is an evil beast, a lazy glutton, a liar. To make these rules and say, well, if I just do these certain things, then I'll be pure. It's appealing for us, too. But here's the deal, folks. It's baseless, because there are commands that people have just made up, but it's also fruitless. It doesn't really fix the problem. Because the problem is not the things that you take in that make you impure. The problem is that in your heart and in your conscience, you are already defiled. That helps us make sense of verse 15. In verse 15, Paul points out, let's just look at the second half first. He says, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So these people were teaching a false teaching, saying, If you just take in what's right, it makes you pure. Paul says, No. The problem is with your heart. If you're already defiled and unbelieving in your heart, nothing you eat can make you pure. No no rule you keep can make you pure. Only obedience from the heart. That's your problem. You need obedience from the heart. But the opposite is also true. At the beginning of verse 15, it says, But to the pure, that is, those who've had their hearts and their minds cleansed and renewed, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no longer anything like right and wrong. That doesn't mean that the commands of God are thrown out the window. Now, the commands of God still stand, but he's saying to the pure, the commands of man don't matter. No one else can come up to you and give you a rule and say, if you are a true Christian, then you must homeschool your children. Or if you're a true Christian, you must put your kids in public school. It counts, it counts both ways. That's the thing with commands of men. You'll find them contradicting themselves all over the place. You know, People will say, uh, if you're a true Christian, you can drive a Ford, but not a Lexus. Where would that come from? Is that God's command? If you're a true Christian, uh, you should not drink alcohol. Or in some circles, if you're a true Christian, you should brew your own beer. It comes both ways, right? But if your heart is, is cleansed, if your heart is renewed, then these commandments are not binding on you because you recognize that they don't work. And that's the thing. If you look in verse 16, you see the end result. When you try to use these commands to bring purity, what actually happens? Well, you end up continuing to be impure. In verse 16, it says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. See, it promises a lot, but it doesn't bring change because you need more than external obedience. You need a change in your heart. So the third thing that we have to do once we discard myths and discard man-made commands We've got to hold on to the truth. So number three, teach the truth. That's the answer to false teaching. Paul says to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And contrary to myths and man-made commands, truth has a basis and it's fruitful. See, the basis of the truth is the word of God. It's not made up. It's not based on groundless speculation. It's not something that man has just just made up with rules. No, it's God's revelation. It's what God has revealed to us about himself and about how we are to live. You know, it's about God's story of creating us for relationship with him, us damaging that relationship, breaking it through the fall and sin, but God not leaving us alone, that he became a man in Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life in our place died an atoning death in our place, rose from the dead, went to heaven, and we await for his return that when he comes, then we will experience the fulfillment of our hope, eternal life with him forever. Okay? This is what our, what our belief, what our comfort is based on. Not some book that we bought on the bestseller list, not some command that somebody told us this is what you've got to do. No, it's based on the word of God. And the great news is that this truth is fruitful. See, the problem is our defiled heart. Fancy myths that satisfy our ears will not change our hearts. Lists of do's and don'ts that other people tell you to live by will not change your heart. But the gospel changes your heart. See, when Jesus comes into our life, he cleanses are defiled and unbelieving minds and consciences. You know, He gives us new eyes to see what is good and a new heart to desire to do it. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He gives us the power to break the habits of sin in our lives and to actually do what is good. But that's not going to happen if you're clinging to made-up stories and made-up rules. You need to believe the gospel, and to let Jesus into your life to bring that sort of transformation. So wrapping it up, because I can smell dinner downstairs. It's always good. Um, You know, what does this mean for us? As a church, it means that we're committed to the Word of God, right? And and when I come up here to teach, and and when we do Sunday school, and we teach in Sunday school, and we teach in Bible study, we don't just pick a verse here and there as a jumping-off point for our speculation, so that that somehow, you know, I will just propagate my myths to you and you can just, you know, listen to these silly stories. No, that's not what we're doing here. We are teaching the Word of God because this is the source of truth. This is the only thing that will satisfy us, believing and understanding the gospel. And so we'll preach through large chunks of scripture to guard against that sort of myth-building. Uh, this also means that elders will have these qualities like we saw last week in verses 8 and 9 where they hold to the Bible and they help you by instructing you and rebuking false teaching. Individually, for us, this means that we need to be able to recognize false teaching. Uh, when I started telling the stories to my girls at the, at the dinner table, uh, Kit was in it right from the beginning, uh, but Tally had this look on her face uh, like... Did this really happen? You know, like, did, did you really climb a beanstalk today and kill a giant? Like, and, so, and she would ask, like, Dad, is this real? Is this real? Um, and I want to commend her to you for asking that question. Because that's a good question. That, that's what I want us to be. You know, she knew enough about reality, enough about the real world, to think, talking animals, giant beanstalk. Probably not real, but I don't know. It's my dad. I kind of want to believe him. You know, we need to know enough about reality, enough about the the truth of the Word of God, that we can read a book like 90 Minutes in Heaven or whatever, and 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 just have these things that stick out to us and say, is that is that true? Is that real? And if you can't figure it out on your own, that's fine. We're here as a body to help one another. So let's talk about these things. Let's you know, your elders are here to help you. I'm here to help you. Other people are here to help you, but we need to be able to ask those questions. We need to know the word well enough to say, is this real? And then figure it out. There's lots of false teaching out there. We need to silence false teachers. We need to rebuke false teaching, but most importantly, we need to teach t- teach, and hold to the truth of the gospel. And if we do, here's the encouraging part. Okay, Here's the encouraging part. Those other things are fruitless. They don't change your life. The gospel changes your life. If we hold to the truth, it will bear fruit in our church and in our lives. And for that, we can thank God and praise him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. There's so much falsehood out there, even hiding in the corners of our hearts, so much false understanding about what you have taught us and what you've revealed to us. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would hold to the central truths of the gospel with such passion and clarity that we would believe that you died for our sins, that you rose from the dead, that you reign in heaven and you love us, and that we would propel out from here in mission and sharing that truth to others that you would bear great fruit in this world as we show the baseless and fruitless reality about the other teachings of the world. But yours stands up. Your gospel stands up to examination. And you bear fruit in our lives. Lord, would you do that in us today? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.